0: OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to Supporters Fund Ask an Investor. I'm your host, Jeffrey Poffin. Let's please welcome Chiray Gupta, managing partner at 8X Ventures, as our investor for today. Welcome, Chirag. It's a real pleasure having you join us.
1: Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, Thank you for having me on your podcast. And I am uh, very excited about talking about us. And uh, I'm sure there'll be some opportunity to talk about you. I would love to know more about you. And
0: and yes, but let's dive in. I love it. Well, I'm pretty excited too, Chirag, because only a couple of times in all of the podcasts that we've done that we've actually had the opportunity to talk deep tech. And uh, that's what gets me excited because it's not really a common subject. And I think from all of the different YouTubes that I've listened to on yourself, that they're, you're in the same boat and you feel the same way, that there isn't really a lot of people diving into deep tech because of the lack of understanding and background. So we're pretty excited to be able to dive in and talk a bit more about that. But before we start, and the way we love to start is that we want to learn a bit more about yourself. So if you could maybe give us a little bit of your background. I know that you're well educated. You've done a lot of things in the school side from the Harvards to the different BAs in India, which I think is brilliant because I'm also a big fan of school and and have a lot of that. And I think it's really uh, defines a lot of things as you progress. And then all the way through to your startup and obviously McKinsey analysts just give us the real deal and then one thing about you that nobody would know. Absolutely. So let me talk
1: about the my academic career. So I I I studied in India and for my bachelor's I studied business management and so honestly, I wanted to study engineering, but somehow I ended up with business management. I still can't remember why, but the college I went to is the best uh, college to study undergraduate management in India, um, which is under University of Delhi. After I uh, graduated from there, I went to join McKinsey in India and I spent three years working in uh, at McKinsey. Amazing experience. The amount of structured thinking McKinsey teaches you is unparalleled, and a lot of problem-solving skills they taught me are still useful. Post that, I I went for an MBA where I went to a technological university called Nanyang Technological University, and I did a, a, a dual degree with University of Chicago Booth School of Business. So very very exciting place, both the universities, uh, great place to learn. Then I continued on my consulting career uh, post my MBA. And so overall, I did about 11 years of consulting and about half of my time was uh, was spent on doing consulting on startup policies, startup frameworks, and startup governance to help governments across different countries set up those policies, especially in India, especially in Asia, actually. And, and I say this because uh, the the in the last 15 years, a lot of governments in Asia hired consultants to figure out How to build and nurture a startup ecosystem? US was definitely ahead of the curve. A lot of best practices from San Francisco were very useful, but a lot of local practices have, have to be built to develop and nurture the ecosystem. So, I spent about 10, 11 years doing that. So, I, I did about 11 countries uh, doing that. Uh, two of my favorite experiences happened in Singapore and Saudi. They both are very extreme end of the ecosystem, but they both have, uh, have, have very, very unique strengths when it comes to pulling the startup ecosystem. And they're doing it very differently. Post my consulting career, uh, I went on to join a company called Kareem, which was uh, the Uber of Middle East. Uh, and I'm using the definition, uh, which was used about five years back, a uh, very exciting place. Um, and so we we were the first super app and the biggest tech company in the Middle East. I was a strategy director for the global strategy, uh, strategy and I looked at the certain areas of finance as well. And... Uh, We got acquired by Uber then for about uh, $3.1 billion. Very, very exciting journey. Um, And it was a great experience. Post-Kareem or post-Uber, because we became Uber after acquisition, um, I moved to this company called 500 Startups, which is a global VC firm uh, based out of SF and about $2 billion uh, AUM. So I was part of the Saudi team, very exciting on um, looking at this uh, of the overall MENA ecosystem sitting in Saudi. And in January this year, uh, I, together with a billionaire and two other multimillionaires, started this company called 8X Ventures which is a deep tech focused uh, venture capital firm. So that's a long uh, introduction uh, that I uh, that kind of covers both academic and non-academic side of it. You asked me a question on one thing that almost no one knows about me. Um, and so, uh, there is something very exciting, which I did uh, and I've been very fascinated about it. So I loved coding and I've always been fascinated with technology. When I was eight years old, I coded my first computer car race game. And uh, this was in 1994 uh, when the computer technology was at an early stage and the programming languages used to be DOS and BASIC and LOTUS. So I used uh, those programming languages at that time to build a uh, very simple car race computer game. And that was I, I personally was very happy about it uh, because a lot of people I knew did not even have computer at that time. I had a computer, I built a computer game and I used it. Uh, so that was probably the first time, first uh, in, interaction that I had with the technology and I was very really successful about it.
2: That's awesome. Great story. Um, th- th- we have uh, certainly a lot, of, um, a lot of
0: stories from, from our uh, early uh, laptop computer. Um, man, I'm trying to think of... Uh, Um, the Intel uh, side of things, so many stories from from back then as well. And it it really kind of shows that uh, how infancy the market was in, but how exciting it was when it was just such a troubleshooting kind of process back then on trying to figure out how to get a modem to work or coding and how getting that to work on the screen with the modem being super slow and all these other things that you were trying to achieve. So it makes it a lot more exciting, especially when you share the stories, Um, very nostalgic and brings back a lot of old memories. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. So I want to kind of take back to your time when, as you mentioned, you were doing all this, all this school, and then you jumped into the consulting side, and you jumped in as an analyst. And I know that um, McKinsey and all of these great platforms, I think what's really exciting about them is that they, they do teach you a lot of Um, process, problem solving, and how to get in and understand things before they become blown up and kind of get into a a spot where things don't work properly, but you're able to analyze them. And I find that a lot of people that do get into the banking sector's legal side, they tend to have a really strong understanding of how startups work. And your approach that you went into gave you a lot of years of startup experience, as you mentioned, and globally. Um, Can you share a little bit about um, how that structure actually has helped you today when you're Looking at companies, um, and I, I reach back to this because a lot of what we do in our past shapes our future. And, and I see that a lot of that understanding is um, pretty powerful. And and um, I'm sure back then you weren't thinking you were going to be a startup. But w- what kind of things could you say that you took out of that? And would you recommend that any any person that's coming out of school to jump into this type of process uh, to learn before jumping into a startup? Um, and what your thoughts are around that?
1: So. For anyone coming out of the university, I very, very strongly recommend going into uh, uh, some of the consulting firms, especially some of the top consulting firms, and and same applies for the top banking firms as well. And I say that because uh, the... Even if you spend, let's say, a year over there, the kind of structured thinking that they teach you is very unparalleled. I, I think I learned more from my consulting time than I learned from my MBA. I learned more about my business management from consulting than I learned by paying probably $200,000 to uh, University of Chicago and to uh, Nanyang Technological University. Um, and that that structure is very important in the startup ecosystem because if you realize one of the fundamental issue on why there's a winter coming startup winter coming why there are layoffs happening and uh in some cases uh of course there is genuine cases in a lot of cases it's a it's a business model flaw uh, and if you think about especially uh t- let's talk about fintech the in a lot of cases your business model itself is flawed it's not meant to make money so now if your business model is not meant to make money, you need to start thinking early on that what is going to be the source of your your revenue. It cannot be uh, a a venture capital fund or it cannot be Sequoia's of the world. It has to be, it has to be, the business model has to be strong itself to sustain and build and grow itself. And that that learning I still carry because when we go into a, a due diligence process, For me, as an individual, it's very, very important that conceptually, is your business model strong enough to make money or not and sustain yourself or not? If that is uh, not the case, if if your technology and the business model are not the moat, any amount of marketing dollars is just going to give you a short-term lifetime. It's not going to be a sustainable competitive advantage. McKinsey has a has multiple frameworks around and all consulting firms have multiple frameworks around sustainable competitive advantage. And this is a very important term. A lot of startups talk about competitive advantage on why we are better than our competitors now. Very few talk about why we will continue to be better than any startup or any company in the future. And how we are going to be 10x, continue to be 10x better than any available solution in future as well. And that difference between competitive advantage and the sustainable competitive advantage is a very big difference. And in that uh, difference, actually, a lot of startups uh, during our due diligence process gets dropped because they have a competitive advantage, but they don't have a sustainable competitive advantage.
0: I love that. And can you give a little bit about what you see as being a sustainable competitive advantage? and um it's interesting. I was with um at a conference in um Egypt uh, yesterday and for the last five days. and one of the things that we were talking about when a question was asked was exactly what you're talking about, which is how do you see a successful company and it is it's not what you're doing today. it's can you be doing this better in ten years? and what does that market look like and from the terminology that you use from a competitive advantage versus a sustainable advantage. What is a sustainable advantage for you? And what does that look like for a a startup company?
1: So there are three uh, dimensions of a sustainable competitive advantage for startups. First is their technology mode. And second is your structural mode. And third is your people mode. And I'm going to talk about each one of them on the technology side is your technology 10x better than uh, in, in the next available solution right now? And B, how exactly are you going to deploy the tech development moving forward to make sure that you will continue to stay ahead of the curve? What a lot of startups forget to notice is that they might have built the technology before fundraising, But the moment the CEOs or the CTOs start going to the fundraising process, they get sucked into the fundraising and they don't have time to do a tech development themselves. And the the next layer of people they've hired is too junior to do uh, uh, transformational thinking. They can do transactional thinking, but they are not ready to do transformational thinking, which is needed for tech development. So that is the first uh, uh, part of it, which is the tech side of it. Second is the structure side of it. Are you, as a business model, structured to address the market and to keep capturing the market and, and retain the market without giving them discounts? I.e., is your value creation model strong enough or not? Are you creating more that value than you are capturing the value? Or are you? is your value uh, uh, that you're creating is not significant enough that you can charge a lot of price? So that is the second part. And third is a people element of it. The people, not the leadership team, and leadership team, of course, has to be there. But the one level down that we that you're bringing on board, are these people ready to uh, handle the transformational thinking on an ongoing basis or not? Are they tied to the company for a long term? And are they convinced that they have their role is transformational, not transactional? A lot of time, the moment you go one layer down uh, on the people side of it and ask people about what's their job and what's their job uh, uh, definition, they they say that their definition is to uh, implement their uh, their their role is to execute. Their role is to uh, uh, get get this thing done. Uh, important part. If if you're not if if the next layer is not consistently talking about innovating. About coming up with a new solution, identifying the problem statements on the ground, they are, they are not listening to the customers carefully. Then you're not, you don't have a sustainable competitive advantage. It's a short-term competitive advantage.
0: That's awesome, and I like that because when you're looking at um, when you're building this all out, you're kind of trying to figure out um, step by step, moving forward in a progressive manner, but. Knowing that the CEO has to become a CEO and they have to step down from. The roles that they're already been used to, which is the hands on, the execution. And what's great about this is that um, in our last uh, posted episode, which was uh, with Steve um, uh, Torcas, he actually talks about that. And he says, You know, the best learning I had was when I was in a startup and I had to learn to take a step above and I had to learn how to be a CEO. And he said, and Before that, I thought I was a CEO, but I was looking at it from the wrong angle and I had to step up a little higher in my position, which was to overview everything, build strategy, and let everybody else execute. And then you kind of push those layers down. And when you're pushing those layers down, that's where people start to fit in, figure out how they're building that strategy forward, and then they're pushing the execution down to the next layer. So to your point, I think um, when you're diving into that, that does come up a little bit higher in the layers of companies, meaning more close to Series A, because you got past that executable, but you're going back again to where you talked about the technology side and the structure side, which is, I'm not a startup anymore, I've brought in some financing, how have I actually layered the structure of my code, and my product and my platform, so that it can now start to expand and grow? Is it built modularly? And can I just start to um, grow off of that without having to throw a couple 1000 servers on it, just to support the growth, because the code hasn't been correctly put together. So now what you're doing is you're just trying to offset it with bandwidth, instead of actually having uh, real efficient code that's been built to maintain and grow your business. Absolutely. You summarize it very nicely, actually. So, which is, which is really exciting that from a deep tech perspective that you guys are really analyzing that portion of the business and seeing where that comes in. Um, And then what I love about it is that from your background and, you know, maybe over the years, you always wondered, is there a real value working at a McKenzie or is there, you know, when people say I'm a consultant, are you really getting the real meat and potatoes of being a consultant? And it sounds like it's paid off in droves of dollars and value here that um, the understanding that you've taken is that, you know, even at a analyst level, there's extreme knowledge transfer that's happening that had you inside the thick of things, but really analyzing someone else's business and figuring out what position do these people fit in the storyline of how this business is going to grow and can it be sustainable uh, without, like you used earlier, discounting the hell out of their product just to keep themselves sustainable.
1: And. and- i will also add like one part of my experience which was uh, th- there was one specific meeting where i actually learned this message very clearly and loudly um, in uh, late 2019 i was in a meeting with the ceo of kareem which was sold for 3.1 billion dollars and i was reporting to the ceo and so we were presenting uh, a small part of the strategy He looked at it, and the first question he asked us was, Is this 10x better than anyone who's going to do in the next year? He did not ask me, Is it 10x better than what people are doing right now? He asked me the question, Is it 10x better than what people are going to do next year? All the other competitors are going to do next year. And that kind of took me off guard at that time. But that question was very deep and very important. what people might be doing right now but w- what we need to know is what they are preparing for what they are what they what they might be able to do what kind of hiring people they are hiring and sometimes by just by reading about what kind of people they are hiring you can understand what uh, direction they are running for so are you going to be 10x better than that or not so that was a very important question that, and when the moment i started answering that question consistently it became a habit and i i feel it's a very pow- a very powerful question to have
0: Agreed, very powerful. And, and I, I think when you look at that, and well, you know, one of the things that um I tend to to lean on when you're working with early stage or you're explaining how something has to build is your vision of where you want the business to go. You roll it back and then you create this strategy. When you're rolling it back to create the strategy, you go to that crawl, walk, run. And, you know, you have to crawl before you get to that running stage. And in this case, What they're saying is that that crawl, walk, run is usually a 12 month period. Well, I need to know is that at that 12 month period, which is next year from where we're sitting today, is our strategy aligned with everybody else's strategy? And are we gonna be 10X better than that spot? Because if we're looking at it, as you said from today, we're not going to be ahead of the curve in that next time period. We're going to be behind. We're going to lose out. So what has everybody else done? What homework have you figured out that they're doing so that we're aligned or better in a year from now so that when we 10X going forward, we're going to crush it and the competitors aren't going to be able to last through uh, our growth rates. So uh, very powerful. I love, the, I love that share. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Uh... So to take that and go back into Kareem, now I've used Kareem Uh, The product because um, Kareem is uh, in most of the the MENA region. It is accessible everywhere. So as soon as you jump into Morocco or um, Dubai and uh, Dubai, you can use Uber as well, but uh, Kareem was in Morocco and in Egypt um, and a few other spots and and it works very well. It's a great product. There's a lot of drivers on the system. Uh, Maybe share a little bit about that and that experience. It sounds like that also was impactful to you because you were jumping into a progressive company that, of course, got acquired. So everybody's excited about that side of it. Uh, but during that, what was the what was the atmosphere, the health of the organization? Was it still in that startup mode of mentality, of driving, everybody just pumped to push this business as fast as it could, um, and the tech-wise, very supportive? What was the overall feeling on that, and, and was there any um, key things that you took away from that experience?
1: so kareem was the a startup in the truest form that even though it became like a unicorn the the ceo had a had a strong control and strong understanding of what's happening in every team every department he can walk on the floor and i'm quite confident uh even at the point where we are i think around 1400 people I'm sure he knew names of half of them, at least at the uh, certain level of seniority, he knew names of almost everyone. And because the, the overall organization was extremely agile. Something that you said was uh, you were when you were talking about Kareem, uh, and I want to, it's very important that I clarify that Kareem, uh, the taxi business is a very small segment of Kareem. Kareem is actually a, a super app and has, the, probably the most amount of services that any other app offers in this region uh even now right now so from uh, it, uh i think the latest number is somewhere around 13 or 14 services on the platform right now uh so taxi was the original uh, service that got a lot of uh customers on board and ma- make it made it like a use ca- important use case but Kareem launched so many other services on the platform which helped scale uh, or or increase the the share of wallet from every customer. So the way they attracted, the the company attracted the customers to the platform and once they were on the platform, they were able to monetize it by selling different services to the same customers. And that was a brilliant strategy. And, And it ties back very nicely to what you were talking about earlier. That if if you don't figure out how you're going to keep capturing the value, not just from your your core services, but also from other peripheral services, that's very important. And that's what Kareem did very nicely. I hope I answered that question.
0: Yeah, Bell, that was perfect. There was uh, another piece that um, I wanted to kind of jump into and that they were able to keep up that mentality and that drive forward. Did that come from the startup side? Was that the, sorry, the founder side? Was it something that was driven by them that they just didn't need to get into that corporate side of things? Or was it just the type of people they hired? What kind of structured that energy? Because I think that that's what really makes these unicorns or make businesses powerful is that they're able to maintain that culture
1: so a definitely the founders the the founders of kareem even uh, when, even when we were acquired by uber the the behavior of acting like a startup did not change the the behavior of expecting things let's move fast let's break uh, the unusual let's do something which people have not done before that did not change so the questioning and the behavior of founders did not change then the next layer that was uh, that was hired was also almost all of them came from unusual backgrounds they were exceptionally smart people but did not come from any uh, standard corporate uh, uh, environment and hence they did not come with a predefined notion on what is the right way of doing things so they were exceptions so like uh, one of the uh, one of the person in the very senior position was used to be a news reporter now for a news reporter to run a business operation is very different but because he did not know the what is the right way of doing it, and the common theme was the person has to be excellence, the excellent, and there has to be a passion to drive excellence. And that person had the passion to drive excellence. And that kind of made sure that everyone who came on board was trying to figure out what's right for Kareem and how can we move really fast and not solving for uh, this is the right way, this is the right protocol. People were not so much concerned about it. And what I hear right now, even now people are not concerned about the right protocol. What they're what they are answering for is what is right for Kareem and can we move faster?
0: I like that. And and it, you talked about a few other things in there that really kind of uh, shaped this business. And one of them was that they started to layer in val- more value for their customers. So they weren't just a car application. Um, and I've seen this in a few startups in Egypt, actually, that they've been pitching um, their product really early on and they've they have offer bank transfers, car pickups. They're doing so many things. And I found it was interesting, but I also thought, wait a second, I think you're trying to do too many things at this point in time. Um, is there a time frame where you start to see the layering? You know, I can talk about from CPG to Deep Tech, I'm always pushing people to say, you know what, the first few years... Just focus on the core. Let it be that you're known for one thing. Then layer things on. That way you can focus. It doesn't take away your time and effort. Um, what's your thoughts around that? And and do you see that that as being a great model? And I can just throw in one tidbit. Uh, I saw a presentation from the CEO of uh, Steam Whistle Brewery. This was probably five, six years ago. And they were like selling one beer for 20 years. And I'm going to make up a number, but they were doing like 500 million sales in just one type of beer. And then they decided we should come out with a second. We're the best now. Now we're going to come out with a second. So is that kind of the the same mentality or you're saying, you know what, you got to go fast. So year three, that's when you should start expanding your product offerings.
1: No, I, I, th- I think um, there's a slightly nuanced Answer for soft tech versus deep tech here. So for the soft tech, I think that uh, if you spread yourself too thin, you lose a a lot of focus and that's definitely a problem. In the deep tech, you cannot, even if you want to, you cannot spread yourself uh, too widely because for every product, you have to spend a lot of time doing a lot of research and coming up with a technology which takes years. And if you're trying to build too many technologies at the same time, you're actually going to end up with nothing. So the, 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 in, the in the deep tech, in, in the soft tech, it's a matter of choice. Do you want to spread yourself thin or not? In the deep tech, I don't even see that as a choice. You have to uh, go with one product or two products max, go deep into that, build the technology around that. And then you can find other use cases, or you can find other products or peripherals around that. But... You it's, it's just not uh, technically possible to build multiple products at the same time, unless you have a deep, very, very deep pockets and you have millions and millions of dollars rolling in all the time, you won't be able to do that.
0: Yeah, makes sense. And, and it's time too. And I think you've taken your, um, your consultative background, you can look at, you know, economies of scale and decide, does this make sense if we add in these three new products from a financial cost to recovery? Does this allow us to work quickly or is it going to take away the team and the effort and can this actually be more of a um, uh, a loss to the business over time and not actually gain any ground because of the time it takes to implement so that uh, that's that's very vol- valuable for sure. It sounds pretty cool and pretty exciting that you were able to kind of go through these different um, extremes on the business side, going in and doing analysis from one side into people's businesses, then jumping into a a big company that's going exit, um, and then jumping into a couple other big companies and even into your own startup. So in all of these kind of areas that you were able to get this um, great amount of exposure to and learning from, uh, can you share maybe a couple of things that really defined even maybe in the startup side when you were in that, it's helped you actually reconnect into the startup phase and what founders like about it. Because I'm going to kind of guess that with the experience you have, this knowledge, and then having that startup experience, founders must be just drawn to you right away because you can understand the problems they're going through, but you're also taking a very programmatic approach, which again, not a lot of people have that value to offer because they're either coming from a ex-founder or they're coming from a corporate banker Uh, side of things. So there's such a big difference in gap of understanding and you're kind of fitting in the middle with all this great knowledge. So how are you finding the the founders are taking uh, your approach to um, a business?
1: So um, I generally spend a lot and and you rightly actually said something that uh, every startup is so different and you go from extreme to extreme uh, within deep tech as well that it sometimes takes forever just to understand what is the problem that they're trying to solve. And I have to be honest with you, uh, probably with the uh, startups, I very rarely give them any solution. Every time I get a call from any startup CEO, I end up asking probably 20 questions. And I keep asking questions and questions and questions. And and at the by the end of the call, probably after an hour, Either they come up with the, the they, they have structured their answer in their mind because of those questions, or they get, get tired of the question and they drop the call because they realize that I'm not giving them an answer that they're looking for. But the learning has been, uh, and for me, what works very well is not to share necessarily the knowledge, but to use that knowledge to ask the right questions to the startup to help them arrive at a conclusion is more powerful than sharing my knowledge with them. Um, And a lot of times when I keep going back to them, asking them questions, instead of telling them, what do I think, uh, it forces them to uh, structure their own thinking. And sometimes when they uh, started blurting out uh, completely random information, I I force them by telling them that can you just structure by saying that these are three thoughts that you have or these are three buckets of problems that you're facing and the moment I force them to bucket their thinking it kind of becomes clear to them what is the problem and more often than not they are the one actually coming up to the conclusion by the end of the call that what do they think is going to uh, make sense for them and and almost always I'll say, okay, why don't we do this? Now, this is the conclusion that you have come up with. We test it out for a few weeks and then we can have another round of call. And sometimes when they give me another round of call, I'll go through again the same series of questions. But I, I, it has very rarely happened that I've offered them a solution or an answer of what do I think is should be the answer. I, I think that kind of resonates a lot more with the founders instead of t- trying to Uh, preach them on uh, or be a know-it-all guy uh, that some of the VCs do try to do.
0: I love that. And I find that it works out significantly better when you find the answer. Um, And I think even a lot of um, uh, coaching, uh, life coaches, they all tend to do the same, which is um, ask the right direction, ask the right questions that are going to set a direction and allow the, the person to gravitate into them feel what's going on, understand what's going on, and then be able to leave with more clarity of what's going on in the environment that they may have been, say, overwrought with and being unable to really explore. You've opened that space up for them, and now it gives them a little bit more clarity, or at least they can go ask more questions, and that's going to really allow them to hopefully come up with a direction. If not now, when they don't sleep all night, they'll be able to come up with that answer in the morning. Absolutely. No, I love that. That's awesome. So brilliantly, how you've kind of gone through this. You're working really nicely with founders. You guys jump in and start to create your own fund. Maybe you can share a little bit about this journey,, uh, what got you interested in going full venture and, and then a little bit more about um, I have a bunch of questions that I want to ask just on the on the whole backend deep code side and how you guys analyze all of this. But maybe just start off with what got you started in um, on the venture side and deciding to create a deep tech venture firm. Um, And then we'll jump into a couple more quick questions.
1: So the reason we built up a a deep tech VC firm was the conviction that the deep tech is A, undervalued right now, and B, uh, it's underrepresented in the VC ecosystem. And when we started digging that why is, is it like that, more often than not, the answer came to the point that Conducting a due diligence on a deep tech startup often takes way longer and re-engineering uh, the deep tech uh, business model to achieve quick results is m- a lot more complex. Which And both the points basically, if I have to summarize, mean a lot of VC time per startup investment. And because there is a lot of VC time in going in and sustaining and getting an exit uh, compared to the soft tech, the your return per person that you can generate or the number of deals that you can generate in soft tech versus deep tech tends to be somewhere around 1 is to 3 if not if not worse and because the the, the uh, for the same amount of money you'll be generating the same amount of returns the vcs tend to stay away from that but having said that the realization is also that when the market turns sour the soft soft tech are the ones that actually go sour first and deep tech are the ones which are relatively less, uh, less uh, likely to go go down south so fast. Because they, the technology is so strong that you can actually liquidate the technology in worst case scenario and still make a lot of money out of the patents or the technology that they built over the years. Versus soft tech, when it goes down, the likelihood of you making any money out of that is very low. So, so I understand that soft tech may not become a unicorn in three months or six months, what we have seen in some of the cases like rapid scaling of the businesses, it might take three years. It's a slow and steady race. But probably we as the promoters for this fund were a lot more comfortable with the slow and steady race versus uh, finding a quick win race. So because we were more comfortable, the conviction was there that you can actually build massively big businesses around that. We decided let's do that.
0: Awesome. I think that's a great plan and um, slow and steady always wins. So I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that um, philosophy. So I think you're uh, certainly onto something there, which is brilliant. Now, how do you, taking all th- things aside from AI to blockchain, machine learning, how you tie all this together, how do you actually, on your side do the analysis to come back and make sure that the companies you're investing in are actually doing what they say versus i've built all these algorithms mind you there's no algorithms it's a matching algorithm instead of utilizing ai to the fullest fullest um how have you kind of structured that and is it benefiting you from being able to go through and analyze this uh, code and are you getting more deals come to you because people are realizing that you're doing the extended work in order to get this company into a better position
1: what is working in our favor the most is our relationship with academic institutions. And when you conduct the due diligence for a deep tech startup without access to industry experts, irrespective of how big you are or how smart you are, you cannot do that. Uh, technology is always evolving. The amount number of technologies and the different types of technologies that, that exist in deep tech is very wide. They are experts in every topic, every subtopic, and every sub-subtopic. And the only places that you can find uh, the experts in all of these areas are actually quality academic institutions. So the first thing that we did, did when we built the fund was build deep relationships with Indian Institute of Technology. So just like you have MIT in the US, there are IITs in India and IITs uh, almost always have extremely high quality professors. So what we did was we spent a lot of time building relationships with those professors, uh, the universities, the the incubators, which are hosted inside the IITs. And because we build those relationships, a lot of time we are able to access that relationships to help pick their brain on what do they think and take their resources, their help in conducting due diligence. And that is a lot more powerful. More often than not, the conclusion that they, the professors, give us about the technology is a lot more powerful than uh, most of the VCs provide in terms of the analysis. And the technology comes from that. All the business model. All the financial analysis is pretty much similar for any industry, for any uh, function of the of the startup that you can look at. So that is, I don't think it's very complicated. It's a pretty straightforward, templatized uh, solution. The harder part is the technology and is there a, a need for, for this technology or not? And are there alternatives to this technology or not? That is something that can only be answered by industry but and that's where those academy institutions come in very handy. So we spend a lot of time. I personally spend a lot of time in academy institutions. Uh, our daily office is based inside an uh, in institute of technology, and that gives us access to
2: a lot of resources as well. Ah, oh, that's awesome! I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Uh, being inside of the university, basically, you knock
0: on anybody's door and ask them to start doing something for you. That's pretty. Uh... Pretty fast Absolutely. way to get things done.
1: Sometimes you have to, you have to beg, borrow, or steal. But uh, <laughs> the, the, when you are inside the university, you can actually uh, just knock on someone's door and ask for a five-minute favor. And sometimes their five-minute knowledge is more insightful than two hours of PC
0: conversation. I love that. I love that. Might be our next move. I'm a big fan. Well shared. Uh, in one of your presentations, you talk about identifying uh, winners in deep tech startups. Um, We've talked a few of those points. And hopefully I'm not throwing you out there right now where you're going to be trying to remember what those three points were. But uh, you did bring up three things that really define what you look for when it comes to uh, diving into a deep tech. Um, I thought that was great. And of course, that's why I'm bringing in some of your uh, content into this. But uh, could you share what those three things are? Because I do think it makes a big difference in uh, the founders world on when they're building something uh, that generalizing it. These are some of the things that they should keep in mind when they're building their company.
1: If you can give me the headline, I want to make sure that I am consistent in that. If you can give me the headline on what are the three things I said, I can elaborate on that. If you have it with me, if not, I can share my fresh perspective.
0: Uh, you can. You're welcome to share the perspective. I'll give you the headline in in two seconds here, while we're uh, we're chatting. Because you go into um, identifying the maturity of a startup, you've got your uh, L curve, and you're basically talking about the developments and the bets that how you guys are making that approach. But you identify the maturity of it, you identify the sustainability and competitive advantage, and then identifying the readiness of the startup to scale in the deep tech side of it. So those are kind of the three things that you um, you dived into.
1: So I, I I will actually just put it in a. Simple X Y axis, and this is something that we do a lot uh, internally. So, and I'm trying to put all of these three things in a simple conversation. So, if you think of our X Y axis, and X axis is the uh, the readiness of the technology, and Y axis is a readiness of the market. Now, what happens is that a lot of times the technology is not ready, and the market is ready, or the technology is ready, and the market is not ready. For for us. The, they both have to uh, function. So you have to be in the top right quartile to actually make sense that they both are working hand in hand. And once that both the technology and the market maturity is there, that's when the the due diligence starts. And that's when we start the conversation on A, the, the first layer is, are you uh, using a sustainable competitive advantage? Which is The first bullet within that is to make sure that you're using multiple technologies uh, and a combination of that. The second bullet is, is that you must be, uh, you must have a deep roads into the overall deep tech ecosystem. You should not be a standalone. Either you are associated with the corporate venture capital or you are associated with the academic institution or you are associated with an uh, incubator which is known for the deep tech. You cannot be a standalone uh, 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 yourself. And and the third bullet point is that the founders have to be technically very clear on where they are and where they're getting into. So so that kind of uh, filters us down and then we conduct a uh, once uh, the startup meets those criteria, then we go into a typical uh, due diligence process, which is very similar for most uh, VC
0: firms. I love it. And I'm glad you were able to explain that. And I know it was so randomly throwing it in there, but um, I like to do research and come up with the right cool stuff to share, but that was brilliant. And and the reason why I, I really liked that was that, um, You're finding where they're positioned and that they're not a standalone. I think that's important, but also where the tech fits in the ecosystem, because if they're too early, there's a big chance it's going to fail. And if they're too late, then they're just spinning their tires and they're not going to be able to go anywhere. And in deep tech, that's really important because, again, it costs a lot of time and effort and money to build a company. And I think it's something like 40% of companies fail because the tech is not where it's not the right spot. It's not ready. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, that's pretty cool. Well, I think the the last thing I'm going to, that it, before we jump into um, a case study, a real quick case study, is that you mentioned um, a lot of the things that you've learned are structured, problem-solving, governance, and frameworks. Can you just touch a little bit on that? Because I think it's really important that when a startup really starts to dive into this, and maybe it's at a seed stage, that they really start to focus in on what is my governance? How am I governing this entire platform to get to a series A? um, And am I really solving the right problem? And uh, structurally, if I put this together in the right product, uh, the right technology to move forward and allow it to be modular and grow, um, maybe you can share just a little bit about that on how you guys look at this, because I think this again, becomes a pretty crucial part for deep tech.
1: So uh, there are three components to that first, and and this is like a very uh, typical consulting thing that I'm getting into. First is the, your, how's your operating model. Uh, that is the first component. And the second component is what are the processes that you follow internally to do the technological innovation. And when I say process to follow, uh, conducting tech innovation is also a process. It, it it's, it's, it's not just uh, one person saying that, okay, I come up with this idea. It has to be a process on how you ignite the idea. How do you test the idea? How do you repeat the idea? And third is the resource part of it. So for the uh, the question that you asked is about the governance and how do we make sure that we keep moving forward using the governance? Uh, you have to, and there are multiple sub factors under each one of them. The, the, uh, the operating model side of it, the process side of it, and the resource side of it. And resource can be a financial resource, can be people resource, can be multiple other resources. So when you go into the, those conversations on how you're preparing for the subsequent fundraise or how you're preparing for the next stage of growth or the next milestone, uh, all three elements under these three buckets have to come together and make it work. The operating model cannot be uh, uh, cannot be unlinked to the process, which cannot be unlinked to the resources that you, that you have. And they all have to talk the same language eventually. I'm not expecting you to have a 100-page PowerPoint deck, but as a CEO or a founder of the company, you should be able to, sim- in a simple language, articulate to me what is the operating model. Uh, articulate to me very simply, what are, the, uh, what are the processes that you follow for the technological innovation? What are the processes that you follow for the administrative work? What, what do you do when uh, a customer has a complaint? What do you do when a customer is happy and uh, keeps calling the founder, which is taking a lot of his time, instead of calling the team, which happens all the time, actually? Uh, what kind of resources do you have? What kind of human capital do you have? What kind of... Uh, Financial resources. So, yeah. so uh, you, all these things as governance, they are convenances around each one of those components to make it happen.
0: I love it. Uh, and I like that you talked about the repeat model. That's very important as well, like commercializing how you're doing it and what does that look like and when would you actually hit commercialization? So I think uh, all of those little pieces that you shared really help define that governance as a business is growing and they'll reevaluate it at a series A, series B in order to keep scaling and growing that business. So um, I think everything you've shared, uh, Chirag, is obviously super valuable and I could keep talking and picking your brain more, but uh, we're going to have the transition or we're going to be, here for another two hours. So um, which would be exciting for me, but I'm not sure you'll uh the audience can handle uh, uh three-hour lessons here, but you never know. Maybe we could break it down in stages on that on another uh, podcast. But um maybe we transition and and um, dive into a case study now in the experience and exposure that you've had in the markets. Could you share what it takes to be a startup founder? What you know, any of the startups that you've worked with, any of the uh the businesses, he or she, what they've done to really kind of prove to you that they've got what it takes to be a founder and you know they got you excited because of maybe um, a circumstance or something that they went through or what you've gone through just anything that you can share because I think the audience loves to learn a bit about what it takes to be a a founder
1: I'll talk about a journey of a founder which I'm always very fascinated about so this founder comes from a very small town in Bihar which is a small state in India And it's a highly underdeveloped state in India. So now he comes from an underdeveloped state. And within that underdeveloped state, he comes from a very underdeveloped or underprivileged uh, city. He went to study engineering in one of the top universities in India uh, because he was exceptionally talented. And when he was at the university, he was offered uh, multiple jobs at some of the top companies in India. At a salary which is uh, probably matches the US salary. And typically, the Indian salary tends to be a lot lower, but he was paid uh, US salaries in India. He did not take it. And what he decided was he's going to solve a problem which is very prevalent in the smaller cities in India because he had the privilege of understanding the problems of small cities. And he also had the privilege to understand how the technology can solve the problems. So, what fascinated me the most is that he had a very deep understanding of what exactly is the problem and wh- how does the the, uh, the problem impact the society. Not going to the details of the startup, but that particular problem actually impacts uh, almost uh, 10 million Indian people and 10 million Indian workers working at a very day-wage basis. And... Because you're talking about 10 million people on a day basis, and that that problem makes their life very hazardous, their daily day-to-day life hazardous. And once he figured out a technological solution uh, to to make the solve the entire problem for the 10 million people, he realized implementing the 10 million uh, that that solution might mean cutting down 10 million people's job to one million people. Now. That of course, you can do that in the name of technological innovation, but he came up with a business model which is brilliant. He said that instead of selling a fully full robotic solution to uh, which which can actually eliminate ten million nine million people of uh, employment, I will I he built a interim robotic solution, which is like a midway and he empowered all of these he's right now empowering all of these ten million people. to to train them how to use that robot and which will save their life and make make it a lot more safer for them. And because instead of competing against those 10 million people, he made made them his channel partner. And now there are 10 million people talking about this solution all the time. And all of these people talk to each other and the the product is scaling so rapidly, they they can actually cannot even manufacture at the scale at which uh, it's needed in the market. The learning for me was, of course, you can come up with the best solution uh, uh, that that can actually solve the problem completely. But you need to also think about, uh, does does the operating model work or not? If you would have gone for a complete robotic solution, the operating model would not work. The the resources to require to sell, uh, when I was talking about, remember operating model... Uh, the process and the resources, the resources required to, uh, to sell uh, like 10 million units would have been massive. The cost of uh, selling would have been massive. The political backlash would have been massive. So the resources to sustain, sustain the company, which is a highly automated uh, robotic company, would have been a big problem. So instead of doing that, he actually went to the government and said that, you know what, I'm going to repurpose 10 million people to do something else, which is which improves their quality of life. So the government and 10 million people became his channel partner immediately and the product is rapidly scaling. So, so sometimes like figuring it out, going through a journey on, on a deep tech on, and especially in the deep tech world, figuring it out, how you are influencing the lives is very important. And that has been a very interesting case study to me. I'm not sure this is exactly how you were looking for, but that has been a very interesting experience for me.
0: Greg. that was probably the best story that uh, I've heard so far on sharing a case study on what it takes to be a founder. And uh, I love that. I think that that really defines what it takes to not only change an environment, but grow within the environment so that you can have a lot of people uh, that become your champions in a product and in a business. And he found 10 million people that got behind it and, and will help build that product and that business. So that's absolutely brilliant. So great share. Great share. Thank you. All right, we're going we're gonna to jump into our rapid-fire questions. The way the questions work is pick one or the other, and you're coming in as an investor, and then we'll do personal. So we'll start with business, and you just pick one or the other. Looking in the lens of an investor, which you are,
2: you decide which one fits best. Fair? Okay, fair. All right. Founder or co-founder? Co-founder. Unicorn or a four-year 10X exit? Uh, four year 10x exit. Tech or CPG? Tech. NFTs or Web 3.0? I want to say none. Can I say no? None? <laughs> you can say <laughs> none. <laughs> I like that. AI or blockchain? AI. Yeah. First time founder or second, third time founder? Indifferent. Okay. Uh, first money in or Series A? First money in. Angel or VC? VC. Board seat or observer? Observer. Safe or convertible note? Actually, I want to say none. Equity. Okay. Perfect. That's a good conversion right away. Go right at it. Lead or follow? Uh, Lead. Equity or interest payments? Equity. Favorite part of investing? Sorry, say that again? Favorite part of investing. Favorite part of investing.
1: um, Conducting due diligence.
2: I like it. Number of companies invested per year. Uh, 12.
0: Awesome. Uh, Any preferred terms? I think you just mentioned equity being it. Anything else?
1: Equity, lead, and
2: uh, at least Worst case scenario, 3% ownership. Perfect. Verticals of focus Clean tech, industry 4.0, biotech. Love it. Two qualities a startup needs in order to stand out to you
1: uh, very, very, very strong tech focused founders. And very, very, very clear
2: on the problem statement. Like it. All right, we're going to do the personal side. Book or movie? Book. Superman or Batman? Superman. Restaurant or picnic? Restaurant. Right. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Oprah. Five minutes, or sorry, mountain or beach? Beach. Bike or run? I want to say none, <laughs> but I, I,
0: <laughs> I'll probably say uh, say none. <laughs> yeah, you can choose either one or I guess none. Uh, Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? <laughs> uh,
2: Chicken McNuggets. Trophy or money? A trophy. Beer or wine? Uh, beer. Camera or mobile phone? Uh, mobile phone. King or rich? King. Concert or amusement park? Um, um, amusement park, fortune cookie or birthday cake? Uh, birthday cake, TED talk or book reading? Uh, TED talk, TikTok or Instagram? Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn? LinkedIn, most famous person that pops in your mind? Uh, Um, Elon Musk favorite movie and character you'd play I forgot the name of the movie Uh, uh, anyways because all the movies I can think of is Bollywood right now
1: so I I don't think the audience will associate oh Bollywood yeah of
0: course
2: Bollywood (laughs) rocks
0: (laughs) We've interviewed lots of people from India, and you're the first one that's used has had had used Bollywood. So that's good. I like
2: it. Uh, favorite book.
1: Favorite book. Uh, Power Play by Tim uh, Tim Higgins. It's about
2: uh, the story of Tesla. I, I read that book too, and I think it's great. It's a it's a good, interesting read. I'm. Uh,
0: uh, I always like. Recommend- agreed. I like reading the I like getting the understanding of where people come from versus the uh uh other side of the story that you can't believe is how it worked, but I like to deep dive into things and that's pretty cool.
2: Um first brand that pops into your mind. Um Mac. Favorite sports team? I I I I I play uh cricket, so I'll say India. Love it. We're almost there. What's the meaning of success to you?
1: I want to look back and say, I was part of a couple of really successful companies that actually made an impact uh, on the society and made money.
2: Perfect. And the last question, what is your superpower? uh mathematics i like it numbers brilliant
0: all right well
1: i love, I love this rapid fire
0: yes we uh um, it, it sounds like um, I'm working for McKinsey and I'm trying to learn as much as I possibly can about you and then I'm going to come back with a profile or something. But um, I like data and I like understanding things and it was my way of trying to be personal so that I can learn more about somebody without feeling awkward to ask questions. So it comes out nicely and it gets you a, a good understanding of of the person that you get to talk with. And hopefully this allows other people to find ways to connect with you because they can reference the book or they can talk, or bring some Chicken McNuggets over to over to your <laughs> uh, firm, and boom, everything's rocking I, and shaking. Yeah, I, I love chicken McNuggets. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, that's the way into your uh, into your investment pocketbook. So we'll we'll see how that works. But um, either way, Chirag, I want to say it was brilliant chatting with you. I learned a lot. I took a million notes. Um, I got to go out and find some more paper because I don't have enough. I wrote too many notes on these ones, but. Again, man, it was brilliant. I appreciate all your time and everything you shared. Absolutely awesome. And um, just before we turn it over, uh, how can people get a hold of you? Maybe share a little bit about that. And and then the last thing I want to say is uh, we like to turn things over to you, give you the last word. So anything that you want to share to startups, to founders, to investors, I turn it over to you to share that. But again, thank you very much for all your time today. It was absolutely awesome. <laughs>
1: So uh, how people can reach out to me is uh, LinkedIn. I am very, very active on LinkedIn. Uh, if I am not active, someone from my team will always respond uh, to the messages. Um, but almost always I, at the bare minimum, I'll check LinkedIn once a day. So I will always respond to the messages on LinkedIn. Um, any So the second part of the question was any thoughts from me to the founders Uh irrespective of what you're doing, it's going to be a very, very, very rocky uh, start or rocky days that you're gonna have. There will be days you'll go home sad. There'll be days you'll go home happy. Uh, There'll be uh, days you will decide, you will feel that it's a waste of time. It's not. Everything that you're gonna do is actually 10 years down the line. It's gonna be so much more valuable than actually joining any corporate job. So just keep doing what you're doing. if if you are confused uh, about what to start, do go and talk to some consultants, especially from McKinsey, BCG, and Bain. These guys are amazing. Uh, I'm sure that you'll get a lot of uh, startup ideas from them. If you're already on a startup, keep doing what you're doing. It's going to be rocky, but it's going to be worth it. I actually awesome. before we off, Jeffrey. Uh, I I know the recording is still on. Um, I can you you have you have been in the startup ecosystem for a long time, Jeffrey, and I want you to also give some closing, closing thoughts on how people can, people can reach you and what's your recommendation to startup founders.
0: I love it. Chirag, thank you. I appreciate that for, um, I, I guess, throwing, throwing me in there to help out as well and share. Um, I'm a big fan of the startup community and, and I can share that from over 20 plus years of working in the early stage community, I can say that I started off as a cheerleader. And and um, I remember so many times being in meetings and saying, we just need to give the startups a chance, you guys need to let them come in and operate and work with your business. Um, and uh, people would just look at me funny, like, who is this guy? And why is he saying these things? But, uh, you know, today, I think a lot more businesses are so much more open minded, um, regardless if it's cool to work with a startup or not, I think it's uh, you know they've changed the world and they are making a big difference, and we're seeing that every day. So it's um, it's been a pretty exciting journey and uh, to be part of. And I think that you know when when companies are uh, uh, starting off, and uh, you know there's a couple of things that I would recommend uh, for startups to to really look at. And I think the first one is find somebody that's in your industry that has experience and many years behind them, um, win them over. Get them on your side, work with them, uh, treat them like gold and and just try to learn from them. I think that every startup wants to change the world, but they also know that there was people that were there before them and they can provide a lot of guidance and help and help them steer their way through uh, a lot of the tough spots. Um, you know, at the other side of that, there there is other opportunities where you can find uh, coaches, mentors. Um, people that might want to invest in you in the future and and just write it all down and, and keep track of the people that you connect with on a really strong level. And then, you know, if you pitch them on day one, you have a chance to pitch them again in eight months. You got to pitch them again in three years and you never know when that person um, may come back and invest in you again. Um, but if anything, they're just going to invest in their time and they're going to share feedback. And I think that's all very valuable. Uh, I can tell you, I've, I've pitched people years ago and went back and pitched again. And they were amazed at how far you got and the things that you accomplished. And, and that actually de-risks it again. So then they have more interest to come back and, and support you in different ways. So, you know, it, it doesn't always have to come around at the time you're looking. There's a future and things like that can help turn things around. Um, and then just be... Um, just be uh, yourself, be excitable, jump into things, participate, be an executor, get things done. Um, you know, be happy, be supportive. You, you'll see that uh, you'll build a community around you that also supports you and likes what you do. Uh, but community is uh, is a pretty big thing, and it was tough to learn what community meant. Uh, when you're building a business especially as a um, more introverted person you tend to not really understand the community side but i can tell you after years of building a platform on community uh, it really does make a big difference when uh, people feel that they can reach out to you and anybody on your team and they feel like they're getting the same exposure to no matter who they're talking to and they get the same uh feeling of learning and um being part of something and that makes a big difference so i think those are a couple things i would share Um, And then, of course, to get a hold of us, um, we do operate along on LinkedIn. Uh, We're there every day as well. We post, we share, we've got uh, programs that we run. We have one main program called ETE, which is Entrepreneur to Entrepreneur. Um, And we have companies all over the world. We see over 300 companies a month. Um, One of our biggest markets is India. We do get a lot of companies from India that come in. um, And we're excited about that. We've run events in India. We've had a lot of great things that have come out of this uh, startup community. So we're pretty excited at uh, the continuing growth and opportunities that are in India um, and the MENA region. So from that, um, you can email us, uh, we're at supporters fund or sorry, at, um, openpeoplenetwork.com. Um, and, um, if you send it to marketing at openpeoplenetwork.com, someone will get back and forward that to you. You can sign up on our website for upcoming events and, or, uh, follow us in, uh, at any of the podcast spaces or, um, uh, online at YouTube, et cetera. We're everywhere. We try to make sure that we're accessible to everybody.
1: That's amazing. And I love your advice, Jeffrey, about uh, making sure you keep pitching. That's a very valuable valuable, valuable advice. And uh, I'm sure I'm going to re- go to your website, openpeoplenetwork.com and uh, take a look. I may not drop an email because next time I'm going to just reach out to you directly. But uh, definitely, definitely, uh, if I find someone interesting, I'm going to make sure that they talk to you. And thank you for giving me your time. Really appreciate this, uh, like uh, almost an hour conversation.
0: You're a good man, Uh It's been uh, it's been a pleasure, and um, I'm glad to have uh, mutually shared on the podcast. Um, well, maybe we'll edit this part and add it into something different too, because uh, it's not every day that um, we're adding a lot about what we do, but uh, it's been appreciated. Um, and I'm glad that we got the time to dive into uh, everything that you guys are doing. And it's pretty exciting what you are doing. And I want to, again, thank you for all the advice you've shared. It's absolutely awesome. And I can't wait to do my outtake because my head's running hundred miles an hour on what little things I could share the, to follow back up to on what you guys are up to and what you've done. But again, thank you for your time and look forward to staying in touch.
1: Thank, thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. Have, have a good day.
0: Well, there's a, a lot of stuff that was shared from that. And again, on the deep tech side, side of things, um, Tureg really did focus on that. You know, they have a lot of um, things that they want to learn about, especially on the tech focus. Uh, Problem solving, structure, governance, frameworks, all of that fits together under that governance side when you're building out a tech platform. As he said, you know, it can take three years just to get into a real deep dive of a business um, and knowing how that's going to operate and where it's going to go next. Um, A lot of it focuses around, um, you know, asking a lot of questions, being open to to solutions and and letting the founders drive themselves to a great solution. Um, Definition. Uh, people ready, scalable, uh, deploying technology and how it transitions, all these great things that have to happen in order for a company to be able to envision themselves where they're going to be in 10 years, crawl, walk, run, all that beautiful stuff that's going to help any founder understand where their business is going and where they want to be. And as it was mentioned, figure yourself out where you want to be in 10 years, work your way back and decide if that. Uh, technology can support that. And if that's sustainable and that can just keep growing without having to discount the, um, the product or the business, that's a business and you've got something to keep growing on. So very exciting. Glad to hear all of those valuable points. Got to learn a lot. And I want to thank everybody for joining us today. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to share with your friends or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. Feel free to share an audio or video clip around the show. We may include it in one of our future podcasts. Find us at marketing at openpeoplenetwork.com. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup
2: events, visit openpeoplenetwork.com. Thank you and have a fantastic day.